Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And today we are talking about Idle Hands from 1999, going back to the turn of the millennia for this one. Wow. Oh, yeah. And Y2K all over again. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, Y2K Adventures. (laughs) Yeah. It's 100% a movie that will transport you back to 1999. Yes. Because this came out in April of 99. So we weren't quite at the Y2K panic yet, but it was like getting there. It was imminent. It was coming. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels so late 90s, early 2000s. It almost hurts. And I would venture to say it actually does hurt a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) There were definitely certain aspects of it where I was like, oh my God, I know these people. I mean, because I was in high school then. So I was like, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, this is exaggerated, but you know, this is accurate. (laughs) I remember this time. I wasn't in high school yet at this point, but there were definitely holdovers from the characters that are in this movie mm-hmm. when I was in high school. I mean, when I was in high school, it was from, I think it was 2004 to 2008. Yeah, because I started when the graduating class was 05, and not a lot had changed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and definitely um, some things that uh, are timeless about this movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. The thing that is especially of its time, and which I want to go into later, is totally the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. It'll take you back. It will, for <laughs> sure. To some, like, grunge rock, some, like, uh, this is not going to mean anything to anybody else except for people who are local to us, but, like, the 1039 The X era of... Yeah. We had this radio station that was just alternative music, and it was called The X. Yeah. It was super cool. Originally, it was The Edge, and it was an independent station, and then Clear Channel bought them because that was when Clear Channel was a thing pre iHeartMedia mm-hmm. and they uh really really messed up what was an awesome station and now it plays country. <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah, that went through so many different like iterations. Like it was the X and then we had X Fest, which this movie totally like reminded oh, yeah. me because it was Edge Fest before that. Right. It was huge because Dayton doesn't really get like a lot of big, yeah. you know, alternative rock like mega concerts or Montgomery County, I guess. I think the first time I saw Boobs in Public. Was it (laughs) X-Fest? Yes, was it X-Fest? I mean, like case in point, like the difference, I don't even know. Like I know that it was like Static X and bands like that that played X-Fest. At Edge Fest, like the first three years, I think it was Edge Fest. That's how I saw like Veruca Salt and Poe and like all these awesome, you know, early alt bands before alternative rock got weird. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much to say about this movie. Just to summarize, it's a movie about a kid who his hand gets possessed and he doesn't have control over it. And chaos ensues. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Stoner kid has a uh, mischievous hand. Yeah. And it's got the perfect storm of late nineties, popular, you know, actors Devin Sawa, who plays our main character, Anton, named after Anton LaVey, which is hilarious. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's Um, funny. 
Seth Green, who plays Mick, and of course, like Seth Green, stealing all the hearts. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this was like the heyday of Seth Green. And then Eldon Henson, who plays Peanut. And if you haven't seen this movie, maybe you've seen him in Daredevil, where he plays Foggy. Jessica Alba, which she plays Molly, Anton's love interest. And startlingly slash strangely slash awesomely enough, also Vivica Fox is in this movie. Yeah, kind of, um, kind of random, but wonderful. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, your Fred Willard, and he plays Anton's dad, which is pretty funny. So, and like some random people. Apparently Tom DeLong is also in this. He plays one really? of the, the burger jungle people. So does Kyle Gass. That's hysterical. <laughs> it's so random. But it's also weird because Blink-182 was like hitting hard at this yeah. point. I think all the small things came out in like 97 or something. Um, yeah, Probably. Let's see. This is hilarious because somebody was just making a joke about Blink-182 the other day online and you would think I would know this because I made an all the small things joke. Let's see. Dude Ranch came out in 97, and Enema of the State came out in 99. Oh, okay. So Damn It was the one from Dude Ranch that everybody loved, and then there was Enema of the State, which came out in 99. So they probably had a single for What's My Age Again and all the small things that came out, and the party song, maybe. So And it came out, like, two months after. Oh, so so it was right before they got huge, huge, huge. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. And The Offspring. Yeah, they're in it. Which is crazy. Yeah. It's very 90s all the oh, way around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen this movie since high school. There's a reason why I haven't seen yeah. this movie since high school. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was college for me that I last saw this movie. I can't remember how I first saw this movie. It was one of two things. It was either that I watched it with some friends that were all Buffy mm-hmm. fans. And so anything that like a Buffy cast member was in, we would give a try. And so, of course. duh. Um, <laughs> or... I also wonder if I watched it with somebody I was dating when I was in college who would have thought this movie was hilarious and I probably would have been like, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. I am pretty sure that I watched this movie the first and maybe only time. I don't think I've seen it more than once, but my best friend in high school, we used to like watch movies because her mom always had like the best cable. So we used to watch movies. I think I might have already mentioned this, but I'll save the full story for when we eventually cover some Rob Zombie movies. But there was like a whole accidental porn situation. Her mo- her mom was <laughs> sleeping on the remote. It was a whole thing. But I think during that same time we watched Idle Hands because it was on. This was back before streaming services, obviously. But when you could buy the upper level package of like cable and then you could watch stuff on demand for free oh yeah 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 which was like clutch yeah so this was on like showtime or cinemax on demand or whatever and i watched it like that man before the days of streaming and before ads in the middle of movies and stuff yeah it takes you back to a different time it really does i don't even know if that still exists like if on demand cable still even exists i have no clue actually Possibly, because I'm thinking about, like, the last time I stayed in a hotel. And I think maybe Mm. that's still a thing. There are also, like, 17 HBOs now, which I did not realize. I only realized that when I was traveling. I was like, oh, all right. Actually, since you mentioned that, when I recently stayed in a hotel, it had the TV channel, like, the TV Guide channel. And I was like, dang, do you remember the time when you used to have to watch a TV Guide channel 
like through all the channels in order to see the channel that you wanted? Well, I never had cable, so oh, okay. I didn't. I remember like the paper TV guides. Well, and, oh yeah, like, yeah, there was like the cheap version in the newspaper, which was generally useful to me because I didn't have cable, so I was only looking at a very limited section of stations but there was the good kind on the newsstand and i still have like my old x-files covers (laughs) that i bought specifically because x-files we got the paper tv guide when we were still stealing cable because ah yeah my dad installed cable in like the 70s after he got out of the army he installed cable so when we moved into our house he would just hook up the cable But then in the early 2000s, that's when they freaked out and like, they were like, if you steal cable, it's a felony and you're going to prison forever. I feel like the early 2000s were so marked by like the various piracy scares. Like if you steal cable, if you download things, oh my God. You're so bad. It's so bad. It's It's going to destroy everything. It's not a victimless crime. You can't steal. You wouldn't steal a car. Oh my God. (laughs) I still remember that. Jeez. But yeah, that's the only way that I had cable was that we stole it. <laughs> but then when they when they started like really cracking down on it and like driving through neighborhoods to see who was stealing cable, my dad like freaked out and was like, nope, not doing that anymore. <laughs> so then we went to back to basic, the basic package and the spiciest thing on TV was PBS. Yeah, that's how I lived my life <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> okay, so speaking of the late 90s, yeah. I feel like this movie puts you back in the worries and like woes of the late 90s. Uh-huh. So like the beginning of the movie, we start out with Devin Sawa's parents, Anton's parents, which they're just called mom and dad. Like they don't even, they had names in the script, but they don't have names they don't in the have credits. Names. Um, they go through this whole home invasion scare. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I totally remember that like home invasion scare. Like everybody's going to break into your house. Everybody's trying to break into your house at all times. Everything has to be locked. Your windows have to be shut. Security systems abounded. Like, oh, yeah. So <laughs> I was like, yes, I totally remember. Like you have to go downstairs and check. And make sure that the doors are locked. Make sure that you blew out all the candles. Because also, the next big thing is your house is going to get set on fire. Oh, yeah. The burglars will set your house on fire while attempting to break into your home and kill you and steal all of your items. Yeah, they'll steal your giant tube TV. Easily. 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 (laughs) They'll just schlep it out the front door. No big deal. Set your house on fire. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Also, kind of irresponsible to have decorations with actual flame inside of them inside of your home. Yeah, that doesn't feel safe. Just put it outside. Yeah. They definitely had those, like, electric fake candles in the 90s. So, like, just use those, y'all. Exactly. Exactly. Especially if you're going to put them inside. I love the decoration. I, and I'm, like, kudos to them for decorating oh, yeah. and going all out. But also, fire safety, man. Yeah. What the heck? Yeah. <laughs> Has Smokey the Bear taught you nothing? Yes. Yeah. Smokey the Bear, all of the stop, drop, and roll stuff yeah. of the 90s. I just thought it was hilarious that... Like, the home invasion panic was there, was real. Oh, yeah. Even though that's not really, like, the overarching theme of the movie. It definitely puts you back in 1999. Definitely. <laughs> Which I love. And, like, the phone that they had on the bed stand, we totally had that phone in our bedroom, too. Yeah, and then the cordless phone that Anton uses later. Like, oh, And the ubiquitous alarm clock that, like... I swear, was just, like, issued to every home. <laughs> yeah. Like, there was only one alarm clock that every single person could possibly obtain. And it was either, well, you could have the digital one with, like, yep. the red numbers. Or you could have, like, the old school with the bell. But nobody wanted that because if you got the one with the red numbers, then you had clock radio, too. Yeah. And you could use the alarm as the radio, which... 
that was something that I loved when I was a kid because the ant noise is the, yeah, the worst. It's not, it's not great. <laughs> Nobody likes that anymore. No. Imagine, that seems like almost a punishment to have a, it a does. block like that anymore. Yeah, that would be so bad. Ugh. And also, I thought it was pretty funny, like, we're kind of instantly put into, although the 90s weren't as much satanic panic. It, there was still some. Yeah. Like, the 80s were real big, real, yeah. real big. And then 90s was, like, talk show satanic panic. Mm-hmm. There's this really good Vice miniseries on Hulu that I've been watching while I'm working called The Dark Side of the 90s. And they talk about, in one of the episodes, they talk about um, talk show culture and how, like, Jerry Springer was really big back then. Jenny Jones, Mm -hmm. Sally Jesse Raphael, Ricky Lake, Montel, Maury, like, all of them. And one of the things, because, like, Maury was always, who's the baby daddy? Right. Jerry Springer was always, like... Fights. And trailer park, like, you know, quote-unquote trailer park drama. But then, like, all of the other ones, like Ricky Lake, Jenny Jones, Sally Jesse Raphael, those were, like, more complicated confrontations. And some of them they did in the 90s were, like, my daughter dresses goth and I hate it. And they did, like, the makeovers and stuff. Oh, no. Yeah. I can't remember if it was Jenny Jones or Sally Jesse Raphael, but they would bring, like, Satanists on and then, like, have a whole panel. I think Geraldo used to do stuff like oh, that, Geraldo too. Oh, Geraldo is very, very well known for that. Yeah. He's the one who really started all of that. Like, Geraldo's Satan's Underground special was, like, the thing that, like, kicked it off and is marked as one of the biggest moments in the satanic panic. He started that ball rolling for all the other hosts. Yeah. If you've never watched it, it's worth tracking down. It is silly as all get out. I think I saw, I've seen clips of it, but I've never seen the whole thing. Like oh, in enti- it. its entirety. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll have to watch I, it. I have a <laughs> copy of it. But yeah, like even though none of the kids are Satanists, yeah. it, it definitely has that um, at its core, like that essence of like, I'm scared because there are definitely demons that are going to possess me for being, you know, different or in this kid's case, lazy and idle. <laughs> yeah, there was also like in addition to the satanic panic, there was this interesting thing in the late 90s that was like the slacker culture thing Mm -hmm. um and we definitely see that in anton and his parents conversation about him where it was like part satanic panic it was part the sort of rising ubiquity of stoner culture Mm -hmm. where like weed culture was becoming weed culture it wasn't just like a hippie thing anymore Mm -hmm. it was like you know in the late 90s we were well into the era of like you know pot plant merchandise at places like Spencer Gifts in the malls readily available. It wasn't something that you had to like sneak off to a slightly shady head shop to get. Like you were seeing like sort of marijuana and drug imagery everywhere. And that sort of like slacker pothead thing was kind of a new fear that we were seeing in a lot of like mass media and pop culture. You know, this is coming out of the, um, and I always forget what year it was, cartoon all-stars against drugs and things like that in the early 90s it was becoming just more and more ubiquitous that uh you know it was the devil's weed and all this stuff and like the 90s were generally very prosperous Mm -hmm. so kids had a chance to rather than be like okay i gotta put my nose to the grindstone definitely go to college immediately exactly it's like hey you know i'm just gonna take a year or two to just like figure some stuff out and i also don't have to work in order to. and obviously this is not for everybody but like generally we had 
older kids who were able to just kind of rest and relax Mm -hmm. and start taking drugs and eating mushrooms. And you definitely saw that a, a lot more um, starting in the 90s. Yeah. And there was also by the late 90s, um, very related to what you're saying, this sort of end of the grunge era. Mm-hmm. And people were seeing like what had happened to people of the grunge era. Of course, Kurt Cobain's suicide being the most prominent sort of mass media thing that even people who weren't into that music or a part of that subculture it was very visible. Mm-hmm. And so the late 90s, moving into the early 2000s, we were definitely seeing that shift in music, in culture, et cetera, sort of responding to and turning away from, you know, grunge culture, that sort of stoner dropout, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just going to chill and drink my coffee and make my music kind of a thing. Yeah. There's a definite change in like the music and the culture around the music at that point by 99. And it's very evident in this movie too. Like the just the interactions that Anton have has with his friends with Peanut and Mick. So the interactions that he has with both of his best friends and just like chilling, watching MTV, eating cheesy poofs, like their parents seem, I'm going to make the generalization, their parents seem kind of Mm well-to-do, like they're just kind of like, oh, you crazy kids, just do whatever you want. And they make mention that Anton hasn't been to school in like six months. Yeah, like how does that work? I know. I'm like, are they like school administrators? Are they like, is he like home, quote unquote, homeschooled, you know? Like you would think that a truancy officer would be there because Everybody's house in this neighborhood is really big, and the high school seems really fancy. Yeah. Although the 90s were kind of the last era you could do that, because not all schools had cops in them at that point, for sure, especially in well-to-do neighborhoods. That's true. Yeah. Because they didn't do bad stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Because affluent white kids... Yeah. You know, yeah. You weren't seeing cops en masse or metal detectors en masse in affluent white schools at that point, Mm -hmm. you know. And this was – Columbine had just happened in – was Columbine 98? No, Columbine was 99, but it was probably – it was early enough that the filmmakers in this movie wouldn't have been reacting to it. Right. uh, Because Columbine was in April of 99, Oh my gosh, you know what though? This movie came out 10 days after really? Columbine. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So, it Wow. Which I definitely want to talk about that. I have a I have a note to talk about that. Hell with it. Let's go ahead and talk about it now. Okay. Because I have to wonder if I'm getting into a lot. I'm kind of rushing to the end of this movie. But uh-huh. do you think that potentially the end of this movie considering this film came out No, there's no way. There's no way that they could have reshot the ending of this movie in 10 days prior to release. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, so we'll put that aside. I I do want to talk about the alternate ending. But do you think potentially that the reason why this movie bombed so hard, because while we're watching, I always look at the trivia. This movie had a $25 million budget, which I think this movie could have been a huge success. Mm Mm-hmm. But it only made $4 million at the box office, which that is a huge failure for a studio-produced movie. Do you think that maybe it bombed so hard because of Columbine? Because people were not ready to receive a movie where a kid kills his best friends and his parents. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I absolutely think that's true. Because I can see 
not just people. I mean, this movie was geared at high schoolers, but I could see a lot of parents not wanting their, you know, dissuading their children from going to see this movie because I can say, having been in high school when Columbine happened, this was the new wave of the satanic panic. You know, kids were targeted for, Mm -hmm. once again, as always, liking horror films. A lot of people that liked Buffy Mm -hmm. were put on lists. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, oh, they like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it was interesting because it was definitely more girls this time. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, the Columbine Killers were both men. You know, oh, they like that show where a girl runs around and kills people, Mm -hmm. you're on the list. So I can absolutely see where a movie where there's possession, there's horror, it's a kid killing other kids and his family. Yeah, I think think there is some correlation there for sure. And they make light of it. Yep. So like definitely there are a lot of movies that I've seen post really traumatic world events like Mm -hmm. Columbine although not the first school shooting was definitely like the one that kicked off a lot of stuff it was the first of kind of the modern era and that sort of kicked off the era of the emerging awareness of school shootings yeah for sure and like school politics and antics and like how kids feel and like the intensity of those feelings and starting to really explore like hey kids are uh, well not even really kids but like people who are in the late years of high school are almost fully formed adults and unlike the generations that came before where it's like okay we're going to ship you off to war and give you a purpose or you're going to have to go work in a factory to support your family or you're going to be able to study in like this illustrious college or whatever rather than having those purposes it was like a time when you did not necessarily have to do those things like right. the draft wasn't happening we didn't have a big war on so you have these kids that are like oh what the hell do i do and we're finally like oh shit actually we need to start talking about how these kids are nearly fully formed adults Maybe their brain chemistry isn't there yet, but these are going to be voting, purchasing, existing members of society here in a minute, and we don't have a plan for them. We don't have, like, this all-encompassing purpose to do after they get out of high school, and also kids feel and experience emotions just as intensely as anybody else. Yeah. So how how do we cope with this? How do we... Um, talk to kids that are like this. We're finally getting into that era. And then we have this movie that it's like, this kid is, his hand is possessed and he killed his best friends, but they're zombies. it's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. There's just no way that it would have. I don't remember anything about the marketing of this movie. Like when it was coming out, Mm -hmm. this probably would not have been super on my radar until kind of way after the fact. But I am very much guessing that a lot of people shied away from this because it was so close yeah to that and i wonder even if theaters pulled it yeah and i mean like that happened with um was it the dark night was that the colorado shooting was the, yeah the, during the dark night yeah. i mean you can just list like a, there's a laundry list of movies that had like failures to launch because of gigantic you know 9-11 when 9-11 happened oh, like there were tons of movies and tv shows that were either shelved or delayed like 10 years in some cases because yeah. of 9-11 man that's crazy just because of the unlucky 
you know, circumstance of like having a movie that's even generally related or even so. Yeah. Wow. It's such a movie of its time that even that, like just knowing that Columbine happened so close Mm -hmm. to the release of this movie. It's like, yeah, yeah. Just existing during that time and then seeing this movie can just throw you right back to how that felt and (laughs) dealing with all of those topics that right afterwards became huge hot topics. Oh, yeah. And then, like, seeing this movie and thinking, wow, there was a pre-Columbine time. There was a time before, you know, lockdown drills and Mm -hmm. metal detectors and in suburban neighborhoods. And I remember when we started doing lockdown drills and... My dad was so skeptical of all of that because he's like, uh, this is not going to work. Like, you guys don't understand what it's like to be in a panic situation. And like, and don't get me wrong, like, bless all the teachers out there who are just trying to get through the day. But they were always, my dad was always like, you guys don't understand. Like, you cannot be trained to be in this situation unless you've been in this situation. And now I think we're getting to the point where like, yeah, it's absorbed. Because even then, even in 1999, people were like, that, well, that's not going to happen to me. Oh, yeah, definitely not. That's interesting. So you had lockdown drills. I am the exact age where Columbine had happened, but we didn't. I am probably one of the last generations or years of people that went through my entire school career without lockdown drills. Maybe they had it hadn't had time to like... It hadn't. No, okay. because Columbine happened my freshman year and then 9-11 happened my senior year. Oh, so we had wow. a whole different weird set of... Uh, of uh, <laughs> things happening when I was a student. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So no, they hadn't because also Columbine when it happened felt like something to pay attention to, but it also wasn't like I'm thinking I and there were other ones obviously, but like post Sandy Hook where Mm -hmm. it just kept happening. You know, you had Sandy Hook and then you had Pulse and then, you know and same thing with like other mass shootings, like non school shootings. Those were not happening Columbine felt like this big, horrible thing. And yes, it was worthy of attention, but they were really focused on the students. Mm -hmm. Like, why did this happen? Like, what happened in these young men's lives and in their psychology that caused this? Nobody was thinking and talking about at that point, like, what do we need to do to lock down schools that just that was not part of the narrative at that point it was more like how do we make sure no one is driven to this and then how do we you know install metal detectors and things like that for guns like it wasn't the whole you know barricading the doors situation and all of that so that that is still so foreign to me but like my niece who's getting ready to graduate she has never not had that as part of her school life yeah which is wild yeah to me started having them in middle school that was about the time that it had trickled down mm-hmm. i don't make sense i remember having tornado drills but i don't think we ever had lockdowns when i was in elementary school but i definitely remember focusing really hard on the kids and thinking like at first this can't happen and then oh any signs of deviation outside of the norm is a sign that these kids are going to be aggressive yeah and have reason to hurt or harm themselves Mm -hmm. or other people also i think kind of i don't know if you remember this book but i remember it being around all the time when i was in high school it's called she said yes it was written about the columbine shooting it was about cassie bernal who who was she was one of the murdered um girls 
in the Columbine shooting and her parents wrote this book about how she was murdered for her religious beliefs. And then later it came out like, no, that was all crap. Like none of that actually happened. She was not murdered for her religious beliefs. Like mm. the Columbine shooters did had no, they did not care about that. But people clung to that book. I remember that after the fact. Yeah, I was definitely, I was definitely out of school by the time that book came out and was sort of, um, not as like kind of plugged into that. Mm -hmm. But I remember that book being a thing for a while. It was like all over the place. Like it, so it was published pretty shortly after Columbine happened, but it really didn't get big until a couple of years after. Okay. And people kind of clung to it and was like, look, all they wanted was to like kill all the people who were religious and especially oh. like religious groups in my school or like kids who were very like church going, you know, they were like, see, this is what happens when you deviate. This is what happens when you're not like we get preyed upon. We're Christians and and you guys are the ones who like blah, blah, blah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I've totally gone off the rails on this, but I totally think that this movie would not have been made even in the three to five years after it actually came out. I don't think it could have gotten made. No, I don't think so. And if you look at the horror comedies, the style of horror comedies that followed this film, they went in the very goofy, very sexualized American Pie style direction. And I'm talking specifically about the Scary Movie franchise. Oh, yeah. You know, they went to a very specific type of parody that felt very safe. And mm -hmm. there was no question about the horror of it. It was more comedy than horror. Right. You know, whereas this one... It's funny, but it's definitely also a horror film. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a horror film. There's gore. There are kills. Uh, the original ending definitely makes it a horror film. Yeah. But kind of immediately after this, everything we were seeing was like high, high parody, where it was like, yeah, it was a scary movie because you've got Ghostface smoking it up with Snoop Dogg. Right. You know, it's not. And yeah, there are kills, but they're absolutely slapsticky comedy. It was like the millennial version of Abbott and Costello almost. Where exactly. Like, this is not scary. Yeah, and the horror movies that we saw even after this, like those devoid of comedy, like I Know What You Did Last Summer, mm -hmm. Scream sequels, all of those. Final also, Destination. Final Destination, which also stars Devin Sawa. Very, very direct. Very yeah. much like this is the boogeyman. We don't have any sort of cultural commentary aside from this is, well, with the exception of Scream because Wes Craven is a master. But you know, like it was very direct. There was no subtext. There was there wasn't really cultural commentary on like school shootings. That no. was very much a like an afterthought. And the people who were dangerous in high school, they always got what was coming to them. Absolutely. Like it was always a situation. Although the faculty kind of breaks that mold. And I love that because it's like, oh, the teachers are the evil ones. It's like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's so interesting that this movie, it was such a huge failure for all of the wrong reasons, like reasons that it didn't have anything to do with. Mm -hmm. um, because although, is it an amazing movie? Like, am I, do I want to watch it all the time? Like, am I in love with it? No. <laughs> yeah. But also, it had all of the trappings of being a great movie in 1999. Sure, yeah. But then something happened and it's like, well, sorry, you made a movie about a world that no longer exists. Kind of, yeah. I think so. It happens a lot. It does, yeah. And... 
it's not really its fault. But I do think it's got a cult following now. Like, Yeah, yeah. I think this is one that, especially as it's, you know, on streaming and things like that, people are going to be rediscovering this one. And there's so much 90s nostalgia right now, like, especially yes. late 90s into, like, early 2000s nostalgia. I think a whole generation of people and horror fans are going to find this one and, and find something new in it. Although some of the tropes are so dated. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And granted, of course, we always are coming at these movies with the 2022 lens. Yeah. Of course, we can be like, wow, that's so lame. That's like, I can't even believe that that's the way that that was then. But also in 1999, we were getting to the point where it was like, okay, we're seeing the trope of like the hot girl that gets with a slacker guy. Mm -hmm. And it's just like getting so tired. But in 99, we weren't tired of it yet. We only wanted to see movies like that. (laughs) So to kind of switch gears and talk about something a little bit more lighthearted, let's talk about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes. Um, So how did you feel about Jessica Alba only existing in this movie to be... Uh, Devin saw was many pictures dream girl. Oh, it was so it was so annoying because actually they hinted at like some really cool character traits, you know, like oh she's this girl who rides like some kind of like almost motorcycle. Mm-hmm. She's a bass player. She writes lyrics, and you're like oh, okay, and we got like none of that. Like we know these facts about her, but we got nothing of that in her personality and. I'm sorry, the sexy baby delivery of the dialogue (laughs) was just killing me. Like, all of her dialogue was delivered in sexy baby voice. And I just, it, like, hurts my heart when that happens. Yeah, like, all of those character traits only existed to attract Devon Sawa. Yeah. Like, she only is a musician slash, you know, rides a motorcycle slash does anything just specifically to be hot to Devin Sawa. Yeah. I and mean, that's this it. epically fails the Bechtel test. <laughs> oh, my God. So much. All of the women yeah. in the movie, yeah. like, minus his mom. Yeah. That's it. And the mom is in it for, like, all of 45 seconds. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely, like, her and her friend. Tanya. Both of them, like, really only exist to be cannon fodder for the guys. Yeah. Like, and I'm just thinking about, like, all it's re- like things really come around all the way full circle and i think i'm seeing that for the first time in my life seeing the full circle thing because all of the outfits that everybody is wearing in this show in this movie i think i saw today at the mall <laughs> i went to the mall <laughs> i'm pretty sure i saw every single one but like the manic pixie dream girl thing i know that we started referring to them referring to manic pixie dream girls after like elizabeth town and garden state and all that yeah but really, like, you can look back and see it way earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah. The way was already being paved for Natalie Portman's character in Garden State, for sure. Yeah, because, like, why else is Jessica Alba in this movie? Aside from just to be, like, pretty mm-hmm. and the focus of, like, oh, well, we have to save her. I mean, it's really evident when you think about what makes Sydney in Scream so extraordinary. And even like the first Scream, like there are some very problematic things, you know, as we have discussed about sex and sexuality and relationships and things like that. But she was such an extraordinary character for the time because she was not just the mindless girl that was there to, you know, attract the hero. Right. Yeah. And... 
Uh, she doesn't really get any redemption the entire time. And she kind of has that like Jessica Rabbit sexy baby voice mm-hmm. like the whole time. And it's very frustrating. Like, don't get me wrong. I think that this movie has a lot to give in yeah, terms of yeah. watching it. But also the female treatment in this movie is uh, less than feminist, I will say. The names that the guys have for the women. Yeah. Like the fact that, um, what's his face? Low rent Steve Harrington. I can't even think of his name now. <laughs> um, what He keeps calling Debbie Vivica A. Fox's character Kitten the whole yeah. time. And I was just like... Okay, ew. And also, you look like, you know, you're trying to be like a badass Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Please do not call anyone kitten. And he calls her Foxy before, even though there's a clear age difference. Like, Vivica Fox is just a whole ass formed human being. And this dude's three years out of high school. Yeah. And like his whole personality revolves around like looking like a metalhead and having a big truck that has a license plate that says big truck on it. Yeah. And, yeah. he, and there's job, a whole buddy. scene where he's like, don't steal my Ford. Don't let them steal my Ford. Like He's super worried about this truck yeah. the whole time. It's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but also like Vivica A. Fox's character. I mean, this again goes to show us like all of these like really harmful tropes that were definitely still present, you know, even in the 90s. I mean, even now, quite honestly, but like. She is definitely falling into the magical Negro trope. Yeah. And it's bothersome, you know, that she is like the only black person in this movie, period. Right. And as a woman of color, she is, they they try to mask it by being like, it's druidic. You know, they didn't go a whole like voodoo African thing, but still, she is the only person of color in this movie. Yeah. And it very easily, I feel like if they had expanded on her character at all, it would very easily slide into the whole, like, I have this voodoo knife. I have this, these voodoo powers. And it'd be like, seriously? Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Because you want more of her character because really she's the most important character in the entire movie. Yeah. And you get very little aside from like, she's kind of a con artist. Like her whole purpose is to seek out this evil demon that you know, possesses people. And it's very cool. She dresses up like a nun and infiltrates this hospital, but then she finds that the demon's already passed. And then she like dresses up as a bowler and she goes in this bowling alley. But otherwise you don't get a whole lot of like what she does or like why she's cool or why she's badass. Why does she do this? How did she find out about this demon? How did she get this like, you know, Kandarian-esque dagger? All these questions but I definitely agree with you where, like, they're venturing into some, like, very slippery territory where, considering the director and the writers of this movie were white um, men, cis men, it was going to easily drift into, like, she's voodoo. Like, her grandpa was a voodoo, yeah. you know, priest. And that's why. And, of course, I'm putting words in the director's mouth, but... From what we got of her, like... I mean, yeah, what we got on screen. Yeah. and exactly. And also because Molly, uh, Jessica Alba's character, was so brainless, she, Debbie, Vivica A. Fox's character, also then sort of additionally, not fully or over the top, but definitely was also stepping into the sassy black woman trope. Yep. Um, which, again, is like really tired mm-hmm. and, you know... But was so prevalent in the 90s. You know, when you see the the artwork that kind of makes no sense for the actual movie on the DVD menu, you know, she's with the main characters as if she's part of the friend group. And my assumption would be 
if I hadn't seen this movie, oh, she's the sassy black friend. Yeah. She's Molly's sassy black friend because that's what we saw in all of these teen movies in the 90s, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't understand the uh, marketing behind that photo. Yeah, it kind of made no sense. It does not make sense. It also makes it look like, and maybe this is just because I've seen the cover of this movie so many times for whatever reason, it looked like Dude, Where's My Car? Where, like, they're all, like, looking at the camera and they have their hands out, which is kind of funny in retrospect because it's like, oh, yeah, this is a movie about idle hands, whatever. But also it looks like the cover of, like, a pop band, (laughs) the photo does, where they're, like, just putting their hands out and, like, all friendly, friendly. Or, like, the cover of um, Can't Hardly Wait. Yes. And I wonder if that was perhaps intentional to fool people into seeing this movie. Potentially. Like, hey, it's a teen movie. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's funny and there are teens being cool, you know. And maybe to try and get away from, you know, the perception because they're like, wow, this movie is failing so hard. We have to do something. So for the DVD print the dvd format of this movie dvd format uh they potentially were like hey maybe we can get away from the the whole like like kid kills his friends and they turn into zombies thing yeah which is really the charming part of this movie is like the friend zombies yeah they're fun yeah um but just so many other things that are problematic about it that just like the marketing and all that i don't know I disagree with a lot of the critical choices that were made. I disagree with many of them. (laughs) Um, It's funny in parts, but it also handles some. um, It is not sensitive in its portrayal of certain things. Like our characters have a tendency to be one sided. Our main character slash hero slash antihero. He does not have much range. Right. You know, he he should be coming to terms with the fact that he's murdered his own parents and his friends. But he's mostly just like, oh, I have to save the girl. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like this girl I've known for like five minutes. Yeah. We made out on her bed. Yeah. Because my idle hand grabbed her ass really hard and she was really into it. It's like to quote Billy Madison. That's assault, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yes. Another movie of its time. Yeah. Love it. But yeah, it's such a mess. And speaking of messes, before I get to the mess, I did want to say that I do give this movie props to um, for like all of the horror, the great horror movie nods that they have. Absolutely. Yeah. Like several times in the movie, you can see they're watching Night of the Living Dead or Day of the Dead or there's a time when they're watching Halloween. There's a Texas Chainsaw reference in there, too. Yeah. The quote is Texas Chainsaw. And I think they film part of it in one of the sets from a Halloween movie. Oh, nice. Okay. And funny that you mentioned Buffy the Vampire Slayer earlier because the gymnasium that they have the final dance party in is the gymnasium from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, it's Sunnydale. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, at least that part of it. It it got right. Yeah, I'm, definitely. I'm done with that. And like another product of 1999, Rob Zombie, a Rob Zombie music video. <laughs> you know it's 1999 because you got to have some Rob Zombie in there. Because I think he had like just released his solo album. I think yeah. that was Dragula, like had just come out. So they're watching that like music video, of course. And it definitely makes you feel the feels whenever, yeah. whenever yeah. you hear Dragula. <laughs> oh, baby Rob Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> before, before. 
before Halloween, the before, before times. his film career, before the Devil's Re- or before um, House, House of Thousand Corpses, yeah. was that 03? I think that was two thousand three. Uh, I think so. Yeah, what a time! What a time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the ending. Yeah, the ending of this. Oh yes. So the original ending of the movie is basically Anton cuts off his hand. The hand is traveling without him. Um, he tries to microwave it. It doesn't work. And then, you know, his friends are like, burrito. And the hand escapes mm-hmm. um, and goes after Molly, who, for whatever reason, is going to be the object of this hand's affection, wants to drag her to hell. In the very, very brief amount of exposition that we get from Vivica Fox's character, she's like, the hand has to grab a soul and take it to hell with it. I have many questions, but yes. Yeah. And you're like, what? Okay. Because that doesn't even come out until, like, the last third of the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, the last, like, 15 minutes, if that. Where you also find out about her druid watch. Yeah. You're like, where, what? How do I get one? Where? Why, why is the tool that you get as a druid just the watch? Yeah. And she's like, actually, it's almost six minutes to midnight. I'm a druid watch. O'clock. So it's like, okay, so it's Eastern time is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> because they're, I'm assuming that they're in California. They're probably in California. So you're saying it's on Eastern time. Yeah. So just subtract three. Yeah. That's it. That's all you got to do. Just subtract <laughs> three hours. So you have this hand that's kind of been on its own for a while. It finds Molly and Tanya, kills Tanya. Then corners them in the shop class. And, like, the end of this movie and the salvation is, like, Anton gets strength from smoking out of this giant bong that's made out of, like, tailpipes to stop the hand which has possessed this puppet, which is absolutely ridiculous. I swear to God, Charles Band was watching this and was like, yes. <laughs> or they, maybe he was, like, a special consultant or Possibly. something. <laughs> um but they smoke out of this gigantic bong, which the weed thing is kind of a thing that happens throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Like the stoner culture is evident throughout the entire thing. But they smoke weed out of this gigantic tailpipe bong. And then they finally have the strength to, well, actually, Anton uh, smokes the <laughs> the hand out, which don't know how that works. Yeah. Because it's a hand. It doesn't have lungs. But anyways, it kind of passes out. And they're able to stab this hand with this druidic dagger just in time for Molly to not get smushed by a auto lift or whatever it's called. And then Anton gets crushed by the same, the same stupid auto lift. And then we kind of like fade into yeah, his friends go to heaven and they're like, do you want to come with? And then we wake up in the hospital and he obviously, she's like, you, I can't believe that you skipped heaven to come and kick it with me and it's like wow this is yeah yikes girl but i found out online that there is an alternate ending in the trivia that there's a a deleted scene like the original ending and so i was like well you know let's check it out let's see if it's in the dvd which it is it's in the um the special features of the dvd there's a one only deleted scene that they saw fit to put on this dvd dvd format and it is so much better. Oh, it's it's a thousand times better. And I read a quote from Seth Green in the trivia that, and I'm just going to paraphrase because it's kind of a long quote, but basically that the writer, director, studio, all the actors all wanted something different out of this movie. 
Like, the writer wanted it to be, like, Heathers, and the director wanted it to be a Jalo film, which totally makes sense if you think about the whole hand thing. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, definitely a Jalo trope, the hands. Yeah. Disembodied hands, hands doing bad things, blah, blah, blah. And that the actors wanted it to make, like, wanted it to be a reasonable, like, buddy comedy slash horror movie. But then the studio's like, oh, well, we did a, a test screening of this movie, and all the kids want to see more boobs and for weed to be the hero at the end of the movie. Of course they do. They're kids. They don't know what they want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nor does that a good movie make. Like, no, you shouldn't always listen to your teenagers about like major, you know, artistic productions. Yeah. But it also made me think after watching the original ending, which is like, there's explosions, there's fire, like the, the gate to hell is actually opened you know, much more of a narrow miss for everybody. Yeah. And it makes more sense because, like, Vivica Fox's character says the hand wants to take a soul to hell. And so it has to open this portal and then take the soul to hell. So it all makes a lot more sense. It, it gives a much more um, gritty slash horror slash, like, uh, my partner said, Army of Darkness vibe. Very much so. Definitely. Which we love. We love a Sam Raimi movie. But I think that in reshooting the movie... They probably stripped out of some of the elements of that, like, supernatural aspect, Mm -hmm. that particular supernatural aspect and, like, some of the lore. It seems like they would have had to strip that out because you can't really come in at the end of the movie and then just, like, dump all this lore. Yeah. I wonder if they... they, But anyways, what did you think about the original ending versus the reshot ending? I mean, the original ending was fine for what it was i mean it wasn't great by any means it was just kind of like okay he's you know like i said it reminds me of more of a modern full moon movie Mm -hmm. you know like he's gonna smoke the super weed and then he's gonna (laughs) smoke the object that shouldn't be smoked out like according to science he's gonna smoke it out and he's gonna get weed strength and then something wacky is gonna happen like you know that's like three-fourths of the full moon catalog right now i mean it's literally called evil bong yeah yeah, and Ginger Weed Man now yeah. is another another feature there. So it, you know, it was just kind of like, okay, I guess we're going to lean into the comedy on this ending. But then when we watched the alternate ending, I was like, oh, this is a legit horror film ending. And I like it. And it doesn't take anything away from the humor in the rest of the movie, which is, you know, I'm not a big horror comedy fan. We've talked about this before. The humor is just very okay to me and is fine it serves its purpose but like the alternate ending which was the original ending really to me makes it a proper horror film yeah and it also gives anton more of a fully rounded character because he has a moment of redemption and self-sacrifice as opposed to just being like, I'm going to smoke this weed and get smushed by a car and not go to heaven so I can be with this hot girl. The <laughs> end. Like, yeah. Eh. It definitely feels like they uh, they had a lot of 16 and 17-year-olds and they were like, yeah, more boobs in weed. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot of weed in it already. It's a lot of weed. And there's already some boobs. Like, yeah. I think Seth Green said that um, they really wanted to see Jessica Alba's boobs, but I think she was fairly new to acting at that point, so she was probably not like, yes, please, let me show my boobs. Not that there's anything wrong with that, as long as it's on your terms, but she's also fairly young, so maybe she was just like, not the career move. Yeah, not the move I want to make at this point. Yeah. Otherwise, how would she have gotten Dark Angel? I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) 
God, I haven't seen that show in a long time. Yeah, me neither. But yeah, like the ending that made it into the film really feels like going the more scary movie route. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Where it's like, oh, it's goofy. They smoke the super weed. And also the whole puppet thing, like the hand getting inside Uh. the puppet. Which was funny originally. Like, I don't know why they would have a puppet show at a high school, but whatever. Yeah, sure. But he, like, goes into the art room and, like, gets attacked by a puppet, which is funny in short term. But then to bring it back and, like, that to be the thing and then, like, make the puppet evil looking instead of dopey looking like it was. It was like, this is, like, a scary movie. Yeah. This is really goofy. When the hand in and of itself is like, it's already pretty scary. Yeah. And could have held its own at that point, especially post-microwave. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was all charred and it had the weird fingernails Pointy. and stuff. Like, yeah. yeah, it was scary. It's a good horror villain. And I must say that the message pre, like before we were able to watch that by Rodman Flender, the director who was like... <laughs> he seemed so sad. Yeah, he it was very forced he kept talking about how he was really glad that on the dvd format that they could put the actual ending or the first shot ending which is hysterical because yes there was a time prior to dvds and a time when people were still really stoked on dvds and all of the extra stuff that you could cram on there so some of the early dvds have like too much oh yeah Yeah. like not we're not even talking like special edition director's cut stuff but like Oh, this is uh, the director talking over the end credits or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, like, okay, we probably didn't need that to be on the DVD, but they had space. So they're like, oh, write yeah. that, write that shit on the DVD. <laughs> um, but in this one, it, like before you get to see the the actual ending, he, Robin Flender is like, this was the um, alternate ending that we shot. But to be clear, I just want to make sure everybody knows I think that the ending that made it onto the movie is the right ending for the film. And it's like, I don't believe him is the thing. <laughs> like, how much money do you think that the studio paid him to say that? A lot, I think. It had to be. Yeah. It had to be a lot of money because it is just flat out wrong. Yeah. Like, the ending that the movie originally had. And also, keep in mind, $25 million budget, at least a couple mil went into that last scene with, like, the gate opening and, like, the hell portal and the pool and all that. And the hands coming out of the walls and stuff. Yep. Grabbing onto uh, Vivica Fox and Randy. Randy, yeah. I wanted to say Larry, but it's Randy. Those things, like, that had to be at least a couple mil. Uh, being able to feature, like, most of the song Dragula being able to afford the offspring to come and play. And the fact that they covered, that's their Ramones cover. Yeah. So you're paying like extra royalties there. And I want to be sedated is over the credits. Yeah. So like the soundtrack is like, it is a bop. Yeah. But it was probably really expensive. Oh yeah. I would um, assume so. Like at least a couple million dollars went into the budget of filming that final scene. And mm-hmm. Rodman Flender says like, this isn't done. We didn't finish the effects. Honestly, it looks pretty good. Yeah, the effects looked pretty good. And expensive. Uh-huh. I will say, too, like, even outside of the, that end scene, the general effects of this movie actually hold up pretty well. They do, yeah. Yeah, well, you can tell they went with practical mm-hmm. for basically the whole thing. And I yep. think that actually, if 
if it had been 1999 CGI, I think we would be saying something very different about these effects. Oh my god, yeah. I mean, House on Hollow Hill. <laughs> and um, the hand, the actor who plays the hand is the same actor who did Adam's Family, the, the 90s Adam's Family movies. So they actually paid an actor to do like the hand acting after like post cut you know, after uh, Devin Sawa cuts his hand off, which I think totally added to the movie. Definitely. And made it look so good. They definitely went practical. I love when Peanut's head is off. Um, yeah. They did a really good job of, like, making that transition seamless and also giving him an excuse to Seth Green to put his head back on with a, mm-hmm. with a barbecue fork, which was great. Like, it looks good. Yeah. And even in 2022, it's like, wow, the effects hold up. Does the, the, rest, <laughs> does yeah. the rest of it, but not really. But. Absolutely. The bottle appliance in Seth Green's head for three-fourths of the movie looks great. Yeah. You know, it's still very effective. And, like, it makes sloshing noises when mm-hmm. he, like, because <laughs> it's in his brain. The dead parents at the beginning. Yeah. They looked good. Mm-hmm. The weird little eyeball that the cat plays with. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about the cat. Their cat bones. Oh, I love the cat. Bones is one of the best cat actors because he behaves like an actual cat. Like He's like licking the blood off the floor. He's like batting around an eyeball and kind of eating it. Yeah, Bones is a real cat. And we're just going to stick with the idea that Bones is totally fine. Bones is thriving. He's, He's surviving and thriving. He was like, wow, I was a house cat. You know what? I'm not a house cat anymore. F that. I'm going to go be the best tomcat that's all white ever yeah yeah bones is out there living his best life after being ejected from that house or molly's uh mom is a stay-at-home mom and was like you know what i love this cat and so he lives and he's fat and he has like a bow tie yeah yeah (laughs) bones wears a little bow tie i like that that's my head cannon okay yeah because uh there's a part where devin sala chucks him out the window but he still is making noises yeah so i'm just gonna say that was one of his nine lives and he's good he's fine yeah so next time is going to be a little sooner than uh, normal because we could not have Halloween be on a Monday and not release an episode. You're welcome. Yeah, you gotta. <laughs> so you're going to get an extra episode uh, coming next week in short order. And uh, we are going to be doing a classic from the 80s focused on, of course, a Halloween party. We're going to be talking about Night of the Demons. Oh my gosh. I love Night of the Demons so Me too. much. And this is our first Linnea Quigley movie that we're doing. Wow. How have we gone <laughs> gotten nearly a year into this podcast without doing a Linnea Quigley movie? What is wrong with us? God bless her. Yeah. God bless Linnea Quigley forever. We actually just saw her in not only in a movie, but like in the flesh. Man, I really hope that we get to talk about that movie. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. With the we director. Will. We will. That's secret squirrel stuff, though. Yeah, it's going to (laughs) happen. We're just really excited to watch Night of the Demons because it's a fantastic Halloween movie. It is a fantastic movie in general, like Mm -hmm. even outside of the uh, the Halloween aspect. It's got everything that you could want. It's got boobs. It's got blood. It's got illicit Halloween parties and haunted houses. Excellent effects. It's got demons. It's got all of the sort of trappings of an excellent 80s horror film. Yes, I love it so much. And... Yeah, I'm just really excited to watch it in general. Like, even if we weren't doing a podcast episode about it, I'd be like, we should watch this on Halloween. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. 
Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Tonight.